Welcome to Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. One of the things that being a priest has taught me is that healing and addiction is the highest form of spiritual work that any of us can do in this life. When we come to terms with an addiction in our life, we not only have to change a behavior that has been robbing us of our potential, we also have to wrestle with the defects of character that we have that caused us to turn to that substance or behavior in the first place. A person who goes on the journey of healing from an addiction must face every insecurity that he or she has. And they must have the humility to join with others who share that condition in growing spiritually and learning how to accept the things in life that can never be changed, taking responsibility for all those things that can, and having the humility to seek the wisdom to know the difference. That's why my conversation with today's guest is so tender. Seth Mann is an active member of the parish of St. Mary's in Coxsackie, New York. And he is somebody who has made a huge contribution to his community. And so it may be surprising to many that such an incredibly generous and giving and talented person could also be dealing with such a difficult life journey. Seth Demons got the better of him at certain times in his life, but he, in this incredibly candid and generous conversation, shares with us how coming to terms with acceptance of the things he can't change has helped him to be the kind of person he, at an earlier time of his life, only dreamed he could ever be. Listen in as a person who has faced some of the hardest things life can place before us has come to terms with all of the ways God is at work through the healing of his addiction. I am here today with Seth Mann to talk about a form of endurance that is so important to so many people listening today and to the loved ones of those of us who are listening. So we'll begin, Seth, by talking about your early years. Where did you grow up and what was growing up like? I grew up in a very small town in southern Vermont, Peru, Vermont. Um, I was one of four children, uh, the youngest. Um, early on, my mother wasn't around a lot because she was with my brother in New York City at the hospital. He passed of leukemia when oh. he was four. Oh. I was just a baby, I have no recollection of that. And my brother and sister are both nine and eight, nine years older than I am. So they weren't really around. Um, so I was my, my, you know, my early, my early recollection of, of growing up was with the nanny. Because my father was unequipped and incapable um, of taking care of a child. Would that cause you to say <clears throat> that you grew up in a, a sort of sad household? I don't remember it being sad. Um, I just remember it, it was what it was. Mm. Um, Things got a little dicey as I got older. Um, my mother and father were both heavy drinkers. Mm. Um, my father was completely isolated from the family. Um, he came out at mealtime and basically to play golf and, and the rest of the time he was in his study doing whatever he was doing, reading. Um, my mother was around, but she was, you know, she had her, you know, things to do. So I was pretty much left to my own devices. Mm. Um, and it wasn't bad. Mm. Um, things got a little rough because of my mother and father's heavy drinking. Things got a little violent. Mm. Not a little violent, very violent. Mm. Um, and I kind of got drawn into that. But that was over very quickly. About what age? I'm uh, thinking nine or 10. Mm. Um, and then my father was gone out of the picture. Oh, he did. Your parent, he left. Well, I think he was asked to leave. But. Ah, so your high school years, you're home with your mom. 
your older siblings are out of the house. Correct. And so it's the two of you. What are those years like? Well, high school years, I was in boarding school. So I was gone the whole school year. When, uh, when you hear somebody going to boarding school, it makes you think that maybe the family didn't have trouble with money. Is that true? That's correct. Your yeah. family didn't have money problems? No, not at all. Did that make your mom feel lonely, sending her baby off to boarding school? I don't know if it made her lonely or gave her an opportunity to live the life that she wanted to. Uh-huh. There, were, there were plenty of bows, if you will. There were plenty of boyfriends. Wow. Wow. My God. I had lots of uncles. <laughs> you did. You did. All right. So tell me, boarding school. What's life like for a kid in boarding school? Um, it wasn't bad. It, looking back on it, it wasn't bad. I remember freshman year was a little rough. Um, the whole freshman, higher classes, you know, that whole beat down, if you will. Um, but I was a pretty good athlete. So I kind of transcended that because of my athletic ability. Um, I was rebellious as hell the first two, <laughs> two years. And there was one teacher that pulled me aside and said, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? Why, why, why are you fighting everything? You know, what are you doing? Mm. And after that, a, a switch got thrown and I became a very good student honors, you know, all the good stuff. And, that was it. How strict was was boarding school? I I can picture the the dormitory life of a boarding school as being kind of wild when the lights go off, you know. I but how supervised was it? Oh, very. It uh, was. There were there were what we called masters or teachers that lived on every floor. Um, they had their apartments, and then there was a prefect who was the head, the student head. It was a senior student head of the floor. Um, lights out was ten o'clock. And it was lights out. It was strict. I, and, and this was a parochial school. Mm. Um, Episcopal parochial. Mm. Um, local, actually. Kind of. Hoosack. Oh, which we've heard of. A lot of, yeah. a lot of local folks know about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was very structured. Yeah. Very structured. Coat and tie. You know, every wow. day. You know, had to cut your hair. Yeah. So you had said that your parents were drinkers, and I'm going to pause for a second. You had said that your parents were drinkers. When did you have your first drink? 11 or 12 was my first recollection of getting drunk. Mm. Alone or with, with others? I was at my sister's wedding. Um, and I had, I'd had some exposure to alcohol prior to that, but I don't remember ever going off the deep end. Mm. There were a lot of cocktail parties. Um, it was a small town, but everybody knew each other. So there was a lot of, you know, Friday and Saturday nights and lots of half empty glasses and and everybody sleeping late except for me. Was there a consequence to being drunk at that age at a wedding? No, not that I remember. Was drinking a big part of boarding school? No. It wasn't. No. Not allowed. I actually did get suspended in my junior year for drinking. But... Yeah. But that's how strictly it was, oh, it yeah. was taken. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. What happens after, after boarding school? Uh, I took a year off. Um, went to Colorado with a, with a girl. Ah. Um, that ended badly. Um, I ended up back in, in Vermont sometime in the middle of that winter living with my uncle and his and my aunt because my mother was in Europe. Ah. She had taken a year and went to Europe. Um, and then then after that, I, when my mother got back, I, I went north to Burlington, Vermont, where she was going to be living. And I went to college mm. for... One year. First thing I did when I got to college, literally, the first, after I loaded the car and got into my dorm room, was went out and got a job working in a bar. Ah. So, college didn't last. It was, did not last. No. no. 
what would you describe those years of your life like? What was, what was a priority for you during that time? What was your big priority in those years? I just kind of went with the flow. I don't really remember having a priority. You know, I kind of did, you know, okay, this is what you're supposed to be doing, so this is what I'm going to do. Um, certainly, you know, there was a lot of partying going on. Mm. When was the first time that you wondered if your partying was a problem? Was there a point where oh, you... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, probably when I was 18 or 19. Mm. And then certainly right after my first marriage. Ah. First marriage was... 1981. 1981. How long did it, did it last? About 20, almost 20 17 years, 17 years. And so during that, during that marriage, you had a lot of ups and downs. Yeah, it was, we were, we'd been married less than a year when I quit drinking the first time. Oh. Were you encouraged to quit drinking or was that a decision you made on your own? Well, it, yeah, it, it was probably a little of both. Mm. Um, I, I remember it, it was a, it was a Labor Day weekend and I woke up Monday morning and, and every, all my friends were mad at me and I had no recollection why. Oh. And my sister was at my house and she lived two and a half hours away. Oh. And I was just like, okay, whatever. I'll just quit drinking. I'll just stop. Wow. What, what had they told you had happened? I don't, I don't think they ever did. You, yeah, you just knew? Yeah, whatever it was, it was bad. It was bad. So what did your spouse at that time, how, how did she ride the ups and downs of this? Well, she was a heavy drinker as well. She was. Right, and we met in a bar. Um, and she quit drinking too. We both did. Yeah. How long did your first time quitting last? 15 years. 15 years! That had to be so remarkable. You must have felt, I've licked this problem. Yep. I've licked this problem. Yeah. What did you do with the urge to drink during those years? I worked. Ah. I went, I, I worked seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day. Is it fair to call that workaholic? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I just transferred one to the other. You transferred it to work. Yeah. And as long as you were busy, you weren't thinking about the other itch yeah. that wanted to be scratched. Yeah. How does how does 15 years end? What What was the turning point of that? Well, in that 15 years, I built a very successful company. Mm. Um, very successful. Um, and I kind of took the company to the next level. Uh, and had really kind of, you know, made it as far as the industry that we were in. Um, and decided that I was a different person. And I was able, you know, I was, I was the man. Mm. I was the guy that everybody called when they wanted something. Mm. Uh, and I closed on a very large deal and grabbed a bunch of, you know, three or four of my friends who were customers as well, went out and to dinner. And uh, when the waitress asked if anybody wanted something to drink, I said, absolutely, I'll take a scotch neat, please. Uh, a celebratory scotch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Was, how did that night end? Oh, we got very, I, you know, I'm assuming I got pretty drunk, I, you know. Don't quite remember. Well, I, it, it's not not that I remember because I got two drives. You know, it was a long time ago. And, sure. You know, it, it was a party. Um, what's what is probably significant about that night is one year later, I had lost the company. Was completely bankrupt. My first marriage was gone, um, and I was living in an apartment in Albany. Oh boy. That year was the year completely filled with downturn. Oh yeah. It was a year of, was drinking a part of that whole year? Oh yeah. Oh wow. Oh yeah. Wow. So when you got to that place, w would you call that place a year later? Was that rock bottom? But that's not the end of the story. No, no, it, it, was it a bottom? Certainly. It was a bottom. Certainly, was it, was it, was it the hard bottom? 
matters or not. Obvious. Is it fair to say that you don't call something the hard bottom or the rock bottom until it is the last of the bottoms? Right. That's the last one. Right. So you know there is a last. Oh, it's not inevitable that there'll be a last one. Not at all. The risks are I great. I don't know. Every bottom has a trap door. Every bottom has a trap door. And you're willing to, and you're you're welcome to step through it anytime you want. The power of that, which means you hold that loaded gun even right now. Absolutely, every day. You can turn you can turn the knob on that door, the trap door, anytime you want. Anytime I want. Wow. I hope our listeners are hearing that. That's powerful. It it means that uh, although addiction is a disease and an illness, it is one that involves choice also. What a paradox that is. To a point. Yeah. There's a choice. At some point, the choice is taken away from you. Yeah. And you no longer have the choice until you come out the other end. Wow. Wow. There's always a choice which way you want to go. What a powerful moment. I hope that whoever's listening right now realizes what an important insight that is for us all. That is a hugely important insight. And it might be a new thought for a lot of us. It's a new thought. All right, so there's a lot more to the story, so we'll, we'll continue. Did you have any children from that first marriage? Yes. You did? A daughter. A daughter. So um, how long did the marriage last after this bottom that you're talking about? Not long. Not long. No, no, because I had other, I had other, uh, I had other things on my mind. Wow. There was, a, you know, there was another woman yeah. at that point. Um, wow. So how how bad was the divorce process? Pretty rough. Pretty rough. That was a rough one. Um, it got pretty. It got pretty nasty. Oh dear. Um, it got pretty nasty. Wow. Wow. So then, what does rebuilding your life from that point look like? Well, I mean, you know, at, at, when the whole thing came apart and I lost the company and there were the bankruptcies and all that stuff, um, I ended up in, in detox up at St. Peter's Hospital. Wow. Um, where you look out the window of the day room and there's a bar. <laughs> oh, of the detox <laughs> yeah. center. Yeah, that, that was always the funny joke. There's a bar right across the street. Uh, it's gone now. But, um, and, and I, you know, I came out of that and I stopped drinking again. Um, and that was my first, uh, my first uh, foray into the rooms of AA was at that time. Um, and it was, it was rough. It was, it, I remember it being, being just, just absolute hell on her. Why? Why do you say that? Because, because I wasn't, I didn't understand. I didn't, I, I had no idea of what I was dealing with. Um, and I was angry and I was defiant. Um, and I didn't listen. Um, and it didn't work. You got a sponsor at that time. What kind? No. You did not have a sponsor. No. So it's important for folks to realize too. While the twelve steps do provide a structure, <coughs> there, it's it's all done by attraction, not by force. Correct. You get to participate in the program as much or as little as you're willing. Exactly. Which is which uh, sounds like a flaw to the program, but is is the way it works. It must work that way. Right. Wow. So so that that episode with with the 12 steps lasted about how long about three or four months three or four months uh, so maybe longer i don't really remember um because i pulled a geographical what does that mean i left this area i left the Cooksaki athens area um and moved to washington dc to take a new job working for my competition wow did it feel like a fresh start were you filled with optimism no I don't remember it. It was, I was still very angry. Um, and I started drinking again. But nobody knew it. Now I was hiding it. Mm. Were you remarried yet by this point? No. 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 Um, my second wife uh, got pregnant. Okay. With my first son. And we got married shortly thereafter. Wow. How long did the Washington... Chapter last couple years, couple years. Um, my second wife got a got a job offer uh, back up this way, 
and I was ready to go. I, I, I didn't like my job because I wasn't in charge. I wasn't the boss. It was all about, it was all about control. It was all about, it was all about me. It was all about my ideas, you know. You know I'd, I'd done such a great job prior to that, why wouldn't you listen to me? You know, but that's what, it, you know, it was all ego. Mm. No, I had no idea that's what it was at the time. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Wow, so what did the next chapter look like? We came back up here. Um, I was continuing to drink on the QT. Um, and at some point, it, it kind of came back into, you know, because my second wife was also a drinker. Mm. Um, and at, at some point, I don't really remember when, but at some point, it, I started drinking. It was okay that people saw me drinking. That the slate had been cleaned enough? Yeah. In some way? Yeah. When did that drinking become a problem? Probably immediately, mm. but I was controlling it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No, I wasn't controlling it, but I, yes. in my own mind, I was, yes. I, you know, at that point. The I, illusion that we have control over. Right, the, the illusion, right. And, and I was working every day. I was, you know, making a living. I was making money and, and, you know, so, you know, yeah, you know, work hard, play hard, you know, no big deal. At that time, was there anybody saying, I'm concerned? Not that I remember. Not really. Yeah. And you, you didn't feel like your kids were receiving any detrimental effects from no. this? Everything was no. going just fine enough? Yeah. yeah. Everything was, you know. When did that, when did that stop? At some point, it, I mean, and when I, after I picked up after that, going to Washington or shortly before that, um, that binge, as I call it, or that drinking episode lasted another 15 years. Yeah. Uh, and it just, it, it, at some point towards the end of that period, um, I began to lose control. Mm. I could no longer work hard and play hard. I played hard and I worked hard at the same time. Ah. It got to that point um, where, you know, it, you know, the bottle had me. I needed it to start my day um, and work through my day and finish my day. I think that's another important moment. The bottle had me. And I think a lot of us might, if we're not uh, s subject to alcohol addiction, we might say, oh, the poor guy, the bottle had you. That's kind of a classic form of addiction, but there's so many other forms. Sure. So for me, uh, a lot of our listeners know that I'm a recovering food addict. The food had me. Food, cinnamon toast crunch had me. Or honey roasted peanuts had me. Uh, for others, it is uh, excessive time on the internet has them. Uh, shopping has them. Some, some drug has them. There are so many different ways that we could be owned by what seems like a, a substance that doesn't have any power on its own. And yet... Um, we have to admit that we're powerless over those things. We're powerless over them. Correct. So the bottle had you. How long could you keep that up? Until I couldn't. Until you couldn't. Until there was another bottle. What was that other bottle? It was, uh, I remember that. Oh. Um, it was, uh, it was kind of, it happened over a period of months, three or four months. Um, I was very angry. I was pushing back at every, I was working for somebody, you know, and, and he wasn't doing it the way I wanted to. I remember standing in, in, in front of him screaming and yelling. It was about time people started showing me some respect. Mm. Um, and then there was a big party and, and I just, I just went nuts for two days, two or three days. And I woke up, you know, I don't know whether it was a Monday or a Tuesday. Couldn't go to work. Uh, I was so sick. And uh, I reached out to a friend of mine in the rooms. What were the consequences for that? There really weren't any. I didn't lose my job. 
um, the consequences, there were no, no physical consequences. Yeah. Um, like I didn't lose my job or, you know, my wife didn't leave me. Um, you know, my kids didn't hate me. Mm. Um, it was just, it was, it was just absolute disgust. Mm. Um, it was, it was all me. It was, it was, it was remorse. It was, mm. you know, how the, how could you act like that? Mm. Um, everybody else pretty much gave me a, gave me a ride. Wow. You got a pass from a lot of people for yeah, that. I sure did. But that didn't last. That didn't, they didn't get, how long did they give you a pass? Well, I quit drinking. I stopped drinking. That caused almost, you to stop? Almost immediately. Yeah, that day that wow. I, you know. How many years ago might we be talking? Probably 10. 10 years ago. So for the better part of the past 10 years, you were a non-drinker. Yeah, kind of. You had to sneak a little bit. Well, I, I gave up drinking after that episode. I went into the rooms and... and you know, full speed ahead, damn the torque, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get it right this time. Um, White knuckling it and doing it. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, got a sponsor right away. Um, started making coffee at meetings. How many meetings would you go to a week? Seven. Every day? Every day. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, really, you know, really wanted to get the program. Um, and you know that's where the you know I always say that and, and this is not my word these are these are colloquialisms that are that are common in the rooms is that you know God brought me to the rooms and the rooms brought me to God so that whole that whole evolution started at about that at that time. God brought me to the rooms, and the rooms meaning the places where those meetings happen, yep. wherever they are. God brought me to AA, and AA brought me to God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, happens for a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and that was, you know, that was, that was good. Um, except, I still didn't get it. How do you mean? I didn't give up control. You gave up drinking, but not control. Right. Why is why is having control a problem? For a lot of our listeners, they're like, of course you didn't want to give up control. That's not a good thing. Because giving up control is, is the absolute definition of powerlessness. Mm. Um, it, it's, you know, to me, my alcoholism, my addiction, the, the addiction was a symptom of a much larger problem, mm. you know, what we call character defects. Uh -huh. And, you know, there's a reason, you know, what do they call them, seven deadly sins? Mm -hmm. they're, they're, those are the character defects. But we can't overcome those, can we? Yes, well, <laughs> I don't know if you overcome them, but you understand them. Mm -hmm. You see them for what they are. Mm -hmm. um, and, and because you can see how pride and ego and those kind of things, how they manifest in your day-to-day -day life, you can catch it. Mm -hmm. And you can go, ah, there it is again. Mm -hmm. you know? Do you wind up talking about some of those things when you go to the AA meetings? I do. Yeah, uh, I do. That feels like an important part of the sharing is people, there's a real humility when you go to those meetings. Yeah. People share things that they're not proud of. Yes, absolutely. Um, if you want. Yeah. You can also, right, because you spent years in the program where you weren't using it to its potential. No, not at all. I was, I was, I was, you know, I was... I was a grocery store alcoholic as far as the 12 steps went. Mm. I'll take one, two, and three. Four, five, and six, nine, and nine. I don't, really, I, don't really need to, I don't really need to go there. Because four, five, and six, one, two, and three are, I'm letting this program help me with my problem. Right. Four, five, and six are, now I'm going to turn the focus on myself. And see. Those are the action steps. The ones that require work. 
you have to take a fearless inventory of what you've done. Right. You have to be sorry for them and and try to make amends for these. You've got to you've got to you've got to identify them. Mm. You've got to confess them, mm. and you have to say you're sorry for them. Mm. Powerful. Um, and that was my mistake. Is is I didn't think I had any character defects. I just thought that drinking was my problem. What stops you from giving up on this work when it's hard? I, I would think this is, there's got to be days you just do not want to talk about drinking or your character defects. Oh, absolutely. Um, no doubt. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and there are many days when I don't talk about them. There's no day that I don't think about drinking, but once you understand what your character defects are and you've worked through the process and, and you can identify them and know how they cause you to react to certain situations, then you can, you can deal with them. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to know, and there's, there's the fearless moral inventory. Mm -hmm. Is is beginning to is, is to understand what your defects are, mm. um, and until you do that, mm. you you won't you are at serious risk. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You're at serious risk. So, you know that's a huge, a huge, huge part of it. One of the things I think that people who love someone in addiction, those people who are in the story, they, they themselves might not have a problem with alcohol, but they are they are married to someone who does. They can become very discouraged by the fact that every bottom still has a trap door, as you said. Right. And and there's two things I think that are worth talking about. One of them is probably not in the focus of what we're talking about today, but probably will be a future episode, is to talk about codependency. That when there is addiction in one person in the family, everybody's affected. Nobody's unaffected by it. And most people, because they have their own character defects, play into it in ways they would like to be just, they'd like to say, I, I had nothing to do with that. That's all his problem, or that's all her problem. But that's also never true uh, because we all are part of the web of this and perpetuate it. But I don't think that's a good topic for today. I think it, what might be better for us to focus on is it's a little bit of a heartbreaking story, but there was a a trap door in that bottom that you talked about. Oh yeah. And that's a hard one. And I think that's generous of you because you during this time, you are a you're you're doing everything right, you know, so to speak. You've got um, you're going to meetings, you're you're a man of faith and you're going to church, you're involved in church, you're a good dad, you're a you're a connected husband, you've got all you're you're a uh, you're a very functioning member of society, uh, but but how long ago was it that that took a vacation? Four years ago. Well, it it, 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 it never went on vacation. It was always there. It was always there. The character defects were always there, but because I didn't understand what they were, I didn't think I had them. Ah. But everybody else around me did. Um, and. You know, I, I thought everything was going along fine. I was doing a great job. You know, I was I was the fixer, and and everything was fine. And and then one day, my second wife looked at me and said, "I'm all done. I'm out of here." Whoa! And my immediate response to that was, "Don't let the doorknob hit you in the ass on the way out." Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um. And. We actually continued to live together for about six or seven months, separate rooms, you know. And it was a very good relationship because all the pressure was off. Um, but it deteriorated and eventually she bought a house and, you know, I came home one day and all the furniture was gone. Wow. And I was like, fine, that's just fine, no problem. Wow. Um, and I spent a lot of time by myself, um, which is okay because I like to be by myself. Except my mind wasn't in a very good place um, because I lost. Uh. I didn't win this one. Mm. I lost. 
And at that point in time, I started doing a lot. I was praying a lot, and I was asking for, you know, just just what went wrong? What went wrong? I mean, how come, how come, how could, how dare she? Mm. How dare she give up on me? Mm. You know, why would she do that? Well, you know, you know, what's going on here? Um, and I prayed heavy on it, I prayed heavy on it, and, and I, I ran into, I, somehow I ended up on some website that, and I can't really remember what it was, but, oh, I think it was a website about how to get your wife back or something like that. Um, and I started reading it, and it was like telling my story. You know, I prayed to God, tell me, God, show me, what, 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 is, what is it about me that, that, you know, made her give up on me? And I think, it's funny, I think at that point God had had about enough. <laughs> so he said, okay, you ready? And I, like I said, I found this website and I started reading it and I was like, oh my God, that, that's me, Those are, that's what I was doing, this is... And God, through that website, let me know exactly what my character defects were. Wow. Let me know exactly how to understand them and exactly what they, what they caused me to do to other people. And it was, it was the most devastating epiphany I've ever had in my life. Is it fair to say that it came at the right time? You could have looked at that website at another time earlier in the journey and it wouldn't have resonated. Probably not. I, I don't know that. But yeah, sure, it came at the right time. Mm. Um, it came at the right time. It, uh, it was so devastating that it was borderline debilitating. Mm. And it was, it just consumed me. Mm. And there's only one way to shut the noise off in my head. There was only one, and I knew it was wrong, and I knew it was the wrong way to go, but I had to do something. I had, I had, I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating, I was, I was just an emotional mess. And I had to do something. So I picked up a bottle of booze. Mm. And it worked. It took, it numbed the feelings. It sure. It shut me down. Yeah. And I lasted about a month. Before I was just a, just a mess. Drinking 20, you know, what I call, what I call shift drinking. What does that mean? You drink until you pass out. You wake up, you drink until you pass out. You wake up, you drink until you pass out. Yeah. That lasted about four days, as I remember. Wow. Completely off the grid. Yeah. Were people in your life noticing, worried? No. I was, you know, it was just me and, and just me. Yeah. I had stopped going to meetings, you know. The whole oh. Oh, the, um, but there were people that were reaching out to me, and I was ignoring them. People in the room. Mm. Um, and they knew something was wrong. Mm. And eventually they, I picked, eventually I answered the phone. Wow. And, you know, that was five, four or five years ago. What did recovery from that period look like? It was tough. It was, it was, it was, it was really hard. Um, Tougher than the others? Oh, yeah. Why? Because I had an understanding of what, what, why. Now I knew why. It wasn't the booze. It was the character defects. All the booze was was ways to shut down my mind. So you, somebody else would have substituted the booze with something else. Right. For their defects. Sure. Got it. I mean, you can use whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Anything that will distract you. Mm -hmm. And none of them are good. Whether it's booze or drugs or gambling or, or shopping or food or whatever it is. There it is. It's, it, it can be anything. And that's, my, that's me. That's not necessarily somebody else, but that's me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this, this last time was pretty rough. I was pretty angry, dude. How long was it really hard after, the, after this last episode? Um... Probably a year. Um, it took me a year 
to to work my way through because at that point because I understood why I was like I was I realized how it affected everybody around me mm. and it was just talk about remorse oh my god mm. I wanted to die mm. I kept praying to God just take me just just let's you know did I contemplate suicide absolutely mm. did I have the guts to pull it off absolutely not thank you God for that um you know, how could I remember, you know, how can I let my children remember me that way? Mm. You know, what, you know, whatever. But, you know, certainly, you know, the drunk in me was like, isn't there an easy way out of this? Mm. No. And, and there was, you know, three people that were very integral in bringing me to the realization of what was going on. Um, and they stood... They stood, they stood right by me, no matter how angry and how, you know, how ugly I, you know. All of them were part of AA. No. They weren't. No. One. One was part of AA. Yeah. One in AA and two in the church. One in AA and two in the church. Now, one in AA, but there were others. In sure. The, you know. Sure. Um, but but one, one comes to mind immediately as the, as the real beacon in right. AA. Was that your sponsor? Yeah. So your sponsor did the job of a sponsor, and then some others in your church filled in in a way that was really they re they reinforced him, even though they had no idea what they were doing. Praise I mean, they knew what they were doing, but they had no idea. You know, the the three were not communicating. This is where the the term higher power might be powerful. Oh, right, because your higher power was organizing things to help you. Right. I mean, it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I look back on it and I go, huh, God, so, so, so clearly, so clearly, you know, the higher power, you know, two of the people I'd known for years, mm. I'd known for years, mm. um, and all of a sudden, what they were saying made sense, mm. you know, and they weren't nice about it, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, they me picking up the phone and and, and just bawling mm. just you know just feeling sorry for myself and 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 what am i going to do and and how do i deal with this and walking into the you know one of their offices and, and just completely blowing up his his whatever he was doing mm. you know i remember walking into into his office um and him looking up at me going, how are things going? And I went, Ugh. Uh, I just dropped my head. And he was like, okay, sit down. Completely. And I remember that specific conversation. Um, and he said, you got to start, you got to stop living in the past, man. Mm. And stop worrying about the future. Mm. And you got to start living in the moment. Just for today. Just for today. All those years I had heard that slogan, mm. take it one day at a time, right. and have absolutely no idea what it meant until that moment in time. That's God. Amen. Um, and and that, that, was, that was the beginning. That was like, huh, how do I do that? And he looked at me and he said, you're a smart man, you'll figure it out. And I did. But that didn't, that wasn't the end of it. Because I still had all kinds of stuff going on. And I remember another specific conversation with a gentleman where I explained to him that, of course I had to have an ego. How could I not have an ego? I mean, ego is what, what keeps me going. How can I not have pride? If I'm going to do a good job, I have to have pride. And he laughed at me. He laughed at He's me. He's pointing at me for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a turning point. Oh. Those were two those were two big turning points. Mm. Deacon Mike saying, You gotta learn to live in the moment. Mm. And you, after I had expounded about how I had to have an ego, laughed at me. <laughs> They don't, they don't teach you that in seminary. I, I guess I just did it. <laughs> and I got to tell you, it really pissed me off. 
But then you went on to explain exactly where the, the, where the disconnect was in my thinking. Wow. And that was a turning point. Wow. And then the other turning point was with my sponsor. Mm. And for months, he pounded into me acceptance. See, I'd never accepted before that I was an alcoholic. Mm. Yeah, I'm an alcoholic. So what? Yeah. I never accepted the fact. Or anything else for that matter. My wife left me. Mm. Accept it. Acceptance was huge. So those are the three things that brought me where I am today. Wow. Acceptance, living in the moment just for today, and get rid of your ego as best that you can. So this Understand what it is and how it is not your friend. Right. Your words, not mine. Yeah, right, right. And so let's take a second with that with the, for our listeners. Those are three huge things. Acceptance of what is, living just in this day, not in yesterday, not in tomorrow, just for today, just one day at a time, and to recognize that our ego wants different things than our soul wants, and that our ego must serve our soul. Our ego wants what it wants, and it is not always our friend. So that's huge. Those are huge things. And I'm grateful. Thank you for sharing that I was uh, a big part of that. I'm, I'm really amazed by that. I got to tell you a story. The first time we ever met, I stopped into the rectory. You were upstairs eating your lunch, and I came into the rectory, and Mike was here, and, and I think uh, Bob was here. And I said, hey, how you doing, guys? What's going on? Not much. I said, is this so is the new priest around? And they said, yeah. He's upstairs eating lunch. I said, oh, he's, no, no, I'll go get him. Mike goes, oh, no, I'll go get him. And you came downstairs, and we shook hands, and our eyes met, and the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Wow. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then we had our little whatever conversation we had. And I walked out of the out of the rectory that time, that day, and I said to myself, huh, that was weird. What the hell was that? And now I know. We were going to play a big role in each other's lives, but we didn't, yeah. That's God. Yeah, that's God. That's God. I truly believe that God put you three people in my path mm. for a reason. Mm. How wonderful. How else would it have happened? How wonderful. Just a funny little aside there. It's a wonderful aside, and I'm grateful for it. Oh, my, my, my. Thank you for that. I'm curious... Now in these past, you said it's been about four years since the last struggle. Yeah, I don't, I don't count days. You don't count days? No, I live in the day. So talk to me about living in the day. What makes today, this time in your life, joyful? And what's hard about these, these days? And I'm not speaking about things going on in the news. Of course, we're living through COVID-19. We're living through aging. We're living through lots of things. But how about in, in terms of just... You're living. What? Where are your joys? Where are your? Where are the roses and where are the thorns in your life at this point? The joy is that is that I understand it all, mm. at least as best as I can. Mm -hmm. Believe me, I don't purport to, to understand it completely. But you understand enough. I understand enough, um, and I can see when I'm coming off the rails. I can catch myself because now I understand. Um, and that's a joy. Um, a joy is that, that no matter how broken I thought I was, I wasn't. Um, and that I still can love and still be loved. Um, and that's huge. That's huge. Um, and and I, I'm just glad that I understand that today I'm sober and I don't need a drink. Yeah. Are there times when I want a drink? Absolutely. I think about it every day. <clears throat> what do you do when those thoughts come in your mind? <laughs> I laugh. Ah. Years ago, I always had, I always kept the chip in my back pocket that someday I could drink again. Mm. And after this, after this period of time, I no longer have that in my back pocket because I know it's not possible. Mm. I have reached total acceptance of my situation. 
Mm. And I accept it for what it is. Oh, that, you know, there's another bottom there for me. Mm. And it's got a trap door in it if mm. I want it. Mm. Am I willing to pay the consequence? Not today. I'm not. not today. Not today. Not today. I've heard people speak this way about, about re- recovery when alcohol is the struggle. Is If you were to say right now, never again at your children's weddings will you toast. Never, not on New Year's, not at any event, you will never again. That would be too overwhelming. That doesn't help anybody to think in those grand terms. And you, nobody can promise that. You say, I don't know about what's going on in the future, but for today. And then tomorrow, it'll be today again. (laughs) So today. (laughs) So as long as you stay in today, you can be happy and healthy and and, and to the best of your ability and accepting. Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. the thorns in my side right now is I... There's nothing so bad out there that, that's really, you know, yeah, I'm really tired of working. Yeah. I'm really tired of it. Yeah. Um, I've been working a long time. How old are you now? 62. 62. And you yeah. would you would love to take a break from this work. Yeah, I could stop working right now. Yeah. If I wanted to. Yeah. Um, and I've known that for a year. But here I am still working. Mm. <laughs> Can't really wrap my head around that one. Um, I could walk away any time, but yeah. I haven't. Um, but working is, a, you know, but that's, you know, it's life, I mean, yeah. you know, um, you know, and part of the not liking the work is probably because I'm not the boss and that my boss actually questions me sometimes. Mm. How dare you? Who do you think you're talking to? Mm. See, I still have that. Mm. Sure. I still have that. And it makes me angry mm. when he questions something that I've done. Mm. But then I know, and I get angry. And I sometimes I lash out, mm. and I pull back. And I go, there it is. There it is. There it is. She's still there. Sure. You know. We are who we are. Yeah. And I've asked God to, to, to take all, my, you know, I've given them up. Please take all my defects. Mm. I, still don't quite, I haven't quite figured that one out yet. Mm. Because they're still here. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he takes them for a period of time. But I'm always able to take them back if I want. Sure. Almost like a grudge. Like sometimes I think we can have a resentment or a grudge lifted a little bit or get a little fuzzy. And we can choose to bring it back into focus. Oh, sure. Easily, right? Oh, absolutely. So if there's an ex who's hurt us and we're starting to not think about it as much or it's starting to get a little fuzzier, well, I'm sure there was wrong on both sides. But if we want to... We could focus right in and go, oh, I remember what she did. I, I do remember it. what he did. I do it. I have, you know, I'm, you know, part big part of recovery is giving up resentments. Yeah. Because a resentment is wanting to, you know, well, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's like resentments aren't good yeah. because you're, whatever resentment you have runs space in your head it, yes. and the other person has no idea. It punishes you, right. not them. Yeah. Resenting, resenting someone else doesn't affect them at all. No, it doesn't affect them at all. But I still have them. And I, and I bring them out every now and then, and I dust them off, and I see how they're doing. Yeah. And I have moments of, yeah. of, of anger and of, of you know, you know of, of feelings of revenge, wanting to get revenge. It's yeah. all still there. Yeah. Um, it's just it doesn't control me anymore. I can, I've accepted the fact that they're there and that there are consequences should I allow them to, to run my life. You know what I think is interesting is in this time, as we're recording this, we're in the midst of COVID-19. And it's, it's affecting us very seriously, very negatively. And I'm noticing that one of the opportunities for us right now, spiritually, is to recognize that there's no one to blame. The entire world is going through this simultaneously. But I'm noticing that some people are so unfamiliar with that territory that they would feel better if they had someone to blame. So they're mad at the Chinese, or they're mad at the government, or they're mad at whatever, however the approach is being taken with the lockdown. And I understand that some of those things are rooted in real concerns, 
But we are given an opportunity to not have a resentment right now because no one did this to us. The pandemics have always existed. Yes. It's part of being human. But part of not accepting that, like you said, acceptance is so big. Part of non-acceptance is saying, this shouldn't be happening and someone's going to pay. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's so tempting. Right. right. And it's not going to be me. And it won't be me. Oh, yes, it will. Yeah. It's always going to be you. Right. Yeah, a resentment is like is like taking poison and expecting it to kill the other person. Mm. Oops. If I drink this poison, the other person will get sick. No, that's not how poison works. No. If you had a life like mine, you'd drink too. Uh, See, I got them all. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. One of the things that a lot of... Um, people are talking about right now is that people's relationship with alcohol is changing in quarantine. A lot of us are doing, we're working from home. Not everybody can. You work in, uh, in an essential need yeah. um, in water treatment. And so it's very important that you're at work. You're protecting all of us. Um, but a lot of us are doing our work from home, myself included most of the time. And we're on Zoom calls and we're, we're doing that. One of the things that's been noticed by a lot of people is the it's five o'clock somewhere attitude is really creeping in to a lot of um, people's lives that didn't used to have it. Day drinking is becoming a thing, making jokes, making light of the fact that we're cracking open a beer while we're at work. Now, not all of those people are alcoholics, perhaps, but I, it's been noticed. I've, I've heard rising um, talk and concern on podcasts and news shows about is our relationship as a culture with alcohol in a dangerous place right now because of both COVID-19 is making us want to numb a little bit. Everybody would like to take the edge off a little bit. Whether you are isolated and you want the edge off of your loneliness or if you're trapped with your family and you want the edge off the, uh, the resentments that are you know bumping up against each other. As somebody who is in recovery from alcoholism, what are your thoughts about that? Are there warnings that you want to issue? Are there thoughts you want to share with, with people who might be listening, who they're listening, not because they have a problem, but because somebody, this is interesting to them or, um, but, but maybe there's something we need to think about in our relationship with alcohol. No, it's not my place. Ooh, there's, there's a, uh, an example of ego not running the show at all. No, it's not my place. It's not, I, it, 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 there's only one person that can diagnose whether somebody has an addiction issue. And that's the person. The person themselves. No I, doctor, no therapist, no priest, mm, nobody. It's got to start with the individual. You know, drink all you want, they'll make more. I careful what you ask for. I think this is a very interesting moment to pause and just say what it looks like to see work being put into action. So you've done a lot of work on letting, on accepting, on letting go of ego, on letting go of pride. And right now you have an opportunity to speak with authority on an issue and you're not taking it. I think that's just a powerful moment to celebrate that, uh, a lot of us think, even if we're not invited to get on a soapbox, we might as well just do it and get a get a, you know, a megaphone. And but uh, but there is great wisdom in saying, I'm not sure if I have anything of value to add to that. That's powerful. I have a couple of questions that I like to ask everybody uh, that I'm that I'm talking with, and uh, you can just respond from your gut. We're just going into these issues together. First question is: A lot of people say. Everything happens for a reason. They look back over their life and they say, that happened for a reason, that happened for a reason. Are you a believer that everything happens for a reason? To some degree. Um, you know, I, I believe less in coincidences than I used to. Mm. Um, just because of the path. Mm. Just because of the experience that I have. Um, that certain things happen for certain reasons. You know, did it rain today? For a reason, yeah, because the weather's the weather. I mean, but yeah, I mean, 
you have to see it to understand it. Mm. And it's not always it's not always visible. Mm. Um, certain things happen for a reason, mm -hmm. but not everything. Powerful. Okay, that's 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 got a lot of us, I'm sure, thinking about our own lives, and, and that's that's cool. Tell me, you've endured a lot. You've had to persevere through a lot of stuff. What, in your experience, is the key to enduring? A lot of people are having to endure right now in ways they never thought they would. What do you think is the key to endurance? Acceptance. Oh. I, I think I really believe that it's that simple. What does acceptance mean right now? What does it mean? Can you put words to it if somebody goes, yeah, but, yeah, but. How do you answer the yeah, but with acceptance? Yeah, but I can't accept this. Well, what choice do you have? Mm. You don't control this. Mm. You don't, I don't control anything. It, 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 it's, you know, you know, I can control what time I get up in the morning mm. and I can control, you know, what time I brush my teeth. Mm -hmm. um, but something of, of this magnitude, it, yeah, it, it comes back to who do you want to blame? Mm. Are there people out there that have some responsibility mm. in this whole thing? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, did they do it on purpose? That remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. um, is it going to change anything today? No. Sounds like another, another part of that is it'll be a lot harder to endure if you're gonna focus on your resentments. Absolutely. <laughs> if you're gonna take some time to spend, focus on the resentments, you're not gonna endure well. It's exhausting. You can make this easy or you can make it hard. Yeah. That's your choice. But it, this is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know, whether you take it hard or take it easy, you're going to change it one way or another. Um, you know, we are where we are because that's where we are. Um, this is what's going on. Um, do your best where you are with what you have. So, where we are right now is where we are. Where we will be, we don't know. But what are your hopes? What are your best hopes for what life could be like after coronavirus? What are your hopes? We live in a very divided age. The divisiveness is just huge. And then something like this happens, and you see a, uh, you see a crack in the armor. All of a sudden, people are a little more willing. People are a little more understanding. If anything comes out of this, it's, and we hear it all the time, we're all in this together. Mm. Yeah, we sure are. Mm. And therein lies our strength. Mm. So I would hope to see people be able to understand that maybe we're all in this together. So I would love for our listeners to take a moment and just savor this conversation because that's one of the gifts that we've been given through this coronavirus is a little more time to put around the moments of our lives. So let's just take a moment and right here in this moment, consider what is the crack in your armor that has been caused by this? And what do you want to come through that crack? What are you willing to let in? Seth today talked about acceptance being the key. What is something you've been unwilling to accept about coronavirus, about a relationship in your life, about a situation that you've had? Is there something that goes back to your childhood that you resent? Have you been tempted to use the phrase, well, if you had the life I had, you also would fill in the blank. Is there an opportunity to maybe loosen the grip on that a little bit and accept that whatever is, is. However it was, that's how it was. When we talked about resentments, somebody might have popped in your head. There's a good chance someone flashed in your head. 
Is there a chance that your resentment of that person is not affecting him or her in the least and that you are being crippled by it? What could you do today to move in the direction of letting that go? Seth, man, you've given us a great gift today. Thank you for taking the time to, to speak. And for those of us who know about the 12 steps, we know that the 12th step is to bring this message to everyone who's suffering. And you reached a lot of people today with your humility. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. In listening to this conversation, you may feel that this message was sent right to you for a reason. If you have come to in some sense, think that alcohol or some other substance might have taken over your life. If you think you have a problem and would like to get some help, Seth personally would like to have a conversation with you. He asked me to share with you the rectory phone number so that we could connect you to him personally to chat about what it is that the beginning of this journey can look like for you. Our phone number is country code one 518-731-8800. That's 518-731-8800. And when you call, you can choose my extension, extension five, and I will personally connect you to Seth Mann. Please leave us your name and phone number and what time zone you're in, and we'll be happy to give you a call as soon as Seth is able. Let us conclude by saying the prayer that unites all of us who are in recovery from an addiction, a prayer that is so powerful it can be used every day and in virtually every situation. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God bless you.